Hi, my name is Leah Carter. I'm a medical student, abortion and loss doula, and health policy advocate working towards health equity and access to underserved communities. And I'm Brianna Lopez. I'm a winemaker, current master's student, and advocate for raising awareness about exploited women, specifically human trafficking. You're listening to ACT UP, a podcast that addresses important issues in our world today. Join us as we discuss hot topics, influential women, and grassroots movements across the country. We raise our voices to not only boost awareness, but to spark our listeners to take action within their communities. For those of you who don't know, February is National African American History Month. Black History Month is an annual celebration of achievements by African Americans and a time for recognizing their central role in U.S. history. The time of this recording is Sunday, February 19th, 2021 at 10 p.m. Things may have changed by the time that you hear this. Before we dive into hot topics, we would like to put a content warning on this episode due to talks of human trafficking, missing children, and sexual exploitation. First up in hot topics, 9,000 children died under the care of mother-baby homes in Ireland. Approximately 9,000 children died in Ireland's church-run homes for unwed mothers. This is equivalent to 15% of all children who were born or lived in the 18 institutions investigated over nearly 80 years. The nearly 3,000 page report described the emotional and even physical abuse some of the 56,000 unmarried mothers from farmhands to domestic servants were subjected to in the so-called mother and baby homes. The homes, many run by nuns and members of the Roman Catholic Church, operated in Ireland for most of the 20th century with the last home closing as recently as 1998. They received state funding and also acted as adoption agencies with many of the children adopted to families in the United States. Wow. Yeah, this particular story was really remarkable to me because, you know, like I was raised Catholic and I know a lot of the issues with the Catholic Church. um, And I feel like Irish identity is really tied to Catholicism. And one of the pillars of Catholicism is like, do no wrong, do no harm. Um, yeah. Christian denomination. Of course, we also adhere to the Ten Commandments, one of which is do not kill. And they let over 9,000 children die under their care simply mm-hmm. because they were brought into this world under circumstances that they didn't necessarily deem as moral. Looking at that report, it also like noted that the appalling rate of infant mortality in the homes, calling it probably the most disquieting feature of these institutions. Yeah. And the years before 1960, it said that mother and baby homes did not save the lives of illegitimate children and said they significantly reduced prospects of their survival. So it pretty much seemed like they were like intentionally like not giving them the support and necessary means to even survive. Yeah. As, you know, young children, which is really horrible. <laughs> it's super sad. Mm-hmm. It also makes it seem like based on kind of the the summary and the preliminary, preliminary gathering of the report is that these mothers and children might have been better off not even in the home. Like they yeah. might have been better off living a more transient life than going to seek care at a place that identifies and kind of advertises itself as a safe haven. Yeah. And even like when you read further down to the report, they talk about how uh, like some of those houses were used to for trial vaccines. So they were like guinea pigs. Mm -hmm. So how is that keeping these, you know, these children safe? You know, this mother baby homes. They're really not. Mm -hmm. It's it's like they're embarrassing and not taking care of them. Yeah, they're definitely exploiting the most vulnerable members of their population their population for for what can't imagine you know being a mother and trying to get help from like a a church especially like a catholic church or just a church in general and to have this happen to you like you're better off on the streets at that point all right our next hot topic is going to be about 33 missing children that were rescued recently in los angeles officials in california recovered 33 missing children 
According to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the children were found as part of the Operation Lost Angels initiative. More than two dozen law enforcement and non-governmental agencies participated in the operation. Authorities say that of the 33 children recovered, at least eight had been sexually exploited. Two children were recovered multiple times during the operation. Officials say they were on the track, a common term used to describe a known location for commercial sex trafficking. The FBI considers human trafficking modern-day slavery, and the minors engaged in commercial sex trafficking are considered victims. Assistant FBI Director Johnson said in a press release, while this operation surged resources over a limited period of time with great success, the FBI and our partners investigate child sex trafficking every day of the year and around the clock. The FBI leads 86 child exploitation and human trafficking task forces in the United States and participates in anti-trafficking coordination teams in 12 offices. Last year alone, the FBI initiated 664 human trafficking investigations nationwide, resulting in the arrest of 473 traffickers. I think that the the most remarkable thing that you just mentioned is that two of them were recovered multiple times. And I definitely acknowledge that like in the past, I have been the kind of person like what would make someone go back or like, why -hmm. would you return? But of course, in learning more, it's, it was really ignorant of me to think that because I've never been in a situation like that. And people who are in abusive situations it's difficult to to leave Mm -hmm. initially and they also return so often because that's all they know and that's no matter how toxic and abusive the support is that's all the support that they feel that they have Uh, yes and especially with children who knows like what other kind of psychological attachments they've made with whoever trafficked them in the first place and they don't know anything else they've probably been removed from their family or even they you know started out as they had not a very good home life to begin with and that is kind of the allure of what these people grooming them have is they they feel this false sense of security with them that they don't necessarily have at home. I think you really hit it on the nail with that. It is it's children. So mm-hmm. the, the term that they use w- with saying that they were on track, um, it's a common term that usually describes a known location for commercial sex trafficking. And when they said that, that they had, they got them or, you know, saved them multiple times. You're right. And that they went, that child went back. Mm-hmm. to that trafficker or they were of course they went back by force fraud or coercion yeah and so i think the thing that really differentiates most human trafficking when we think of it as it as maybe adult women mm-hmm. is that these children you know children are so malleable mm-hmm. and trying to find out who they are and what they like what they dislike what the world is about and so when you have a human trafficker taking advantage of a child, the grooming, the process of just trafficking a child is sadly a lot easier than an adult because children trust so much more easier than adults do. And so they're more more easy to be used Mm -hmm. in the wrong way. And when they're taken away, you know, they built such a a strong bond with this trafficker, they don't see them as their trafficker or this horrible person. They see them as their friend or their, um, or a protector or mm-hmm. you know, someone important to them. So they want to go back if, if that's what they choose. So it's, it's really hard when it comes to children and even adults too, of them realizing that that person that they valued, respected, or that was protecting them really wasn't doing any of that and was really putting them at risk for a lot of dangerous things and even introducing them to drugs early on and pregnancy, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So it's really, it's really sad. And it's honestly, 
you know, just knowing that the, the FBI yearly has 12 different offices that deal with human trafficking cases and they constantly have these task forces going out. It just, this issue needs to be brought more to light. It needs to be talked about more because this is something that is going on in everyday life. And it's especially getting worse during COVID. It's not getting yeah. easier. No, I mean, I just told you that I started watching Criminal Minds and most of their episodes, of course, focus on like adult victims and it's usually ends in murder. But there have been, of course, episodes involving children and how how quickly they can be abducted and taken and how oftentimes I think there was even one episode I saw where the children were just like, no, like this is my home now not mm-hmm. even realizing the danger that they were actually in. Yeah. And I think one thing too, with these 33 missing children, there was even, there was even one child who was trafficked by a parent. So a wow. parent, it was, it was a parent kidnapping situation where this parent did not have custody, custody. of this child. Mm-hmm. So they kidnapped the child and then trafficked the child. So they trafficked their own child so there's a there's still a lot of that instance, and I think a lot of people always think that, you know, these children are young, these children are young teens or adults. Mm-hmm. They're snatched, they're kidnapped, or they're coerced by, you know, if they're a young teen of like a young man, which is really mm-hmm. common nowadays, or online social media. But sometimes it's at home. It's your parent. It's your uncle. It's you know, it's a family friend that you yeah. were really close with, and your parents trusted, and you trusted, and next thing you know, they run an errand to pick you up from school and then you never return home. Yep. And that's super sad. I would be devastated. Offensive, which led to his troops capturing the regional capital on November 28th of 2020. Since then, fighting has continued and many more people in the region of Tigray have either been displaced by the fighting or have been killed. Wow. I feel like this was something that I had not heard on the news. I had only heard about it because a friend of mine who is from Ethiopia lost her cousin. And was tweeting about it. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's devastating. And looked more into it. And it's, you know, I think we kind of discussed something similar when we talked about the conflict in Artsakh Mm -hmm. between Artsakh and Armenia. And it's just, you know, a region of people who just want to govern themselves. Um, But of course, like larger, more powerful governing bodies have some kind of stake or interest in that particular region and they're not down for it. Yeah, this is definitely something that I have not heard about in the news. Mm -hmm. And these are issues like this that I feel like people should know about. I agree. It's just, it's interesting what consumes like airwaves in terms of like news that is publicized and like news versus news that I guess comes into my purview simply because of like who I engage with on social media or how I do it or like what other friends that I've made who might be discussing more significant issues other than 
a former president being acquitted of an impeachment because people didn't want to hold him accountable. You know, the news is very selective. Yeah, Ethiopia is also one of those nations that has a lot of people already dying of hunger, too. And it's a poor nation that it's just it's so sad to see when you have crisis like this going on because these people just, you know, they just want to live and not have to deal with, you know, all these kind of threats going on. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we live in the United States and we don't necessarily have all these threats and we're, we you know, we're used to a certain lifestyle but I can't imagine being in Ethiopia in one of these person like people's shoes, living the life that they do. Yeah, I also well, I mean, I think that's another thing that just isn't televised as much because the most I heard it on the radio the other day. The most recent statistic for like hunger in California is that one in fam one in eight families struggle with hunger. So it's mm. like that's also something that people struggle with but I feel like I mean I'm not as familiar with the situation in Ethiopia but I know that here it's more it's not because of lack of food it's a lack of access yeah desert food desert yeah for all of the food deserts lack of transportation funding things like that so like I can't really speak on hunger in Ethiopia in that way but I know that this genocidal crisis is definitely not helping and like mm-hmm. any existing issues. Yeah. And the fact that this, the people in this particular region are being targeted because, you know, they just simply have possibly a different way of life that they would like to live. And the larger Ethiopian government is like, mm, no thanks. Next, Saudi women's rights activist, Freed, a Saudi women's rights activist who pushed to end the country's ban on female drivers has been freed after spending just over a thousand days in prison where she reportedly had been forced to kiss and perform other sexual acts on her interrogators. Lou Jean emerged from custody Wednesday following her arrest in 2018. She was sentenced to almost six years in prison last December under a broad counterterrorism law. Lou Jean spent 1,001 days in prison with time in penitential detention and solitary confinement. She was accused of crimes such as agitating for change, using the internet to cause disorder and pursuing a foreign agenda. I could not imagine being sent to prison for a thousand days for agitating for change. The I feel like we would be in prison a long time. I was what we gonna say, do. girl, the way we be talking. Oh my god, reckless. we'd We're be just in like, prison no, for this days. needs to end. We would have been, yeah, no. Mm-mm. So, rights groups have described those charges as politically motivated, and obviously, they sound politically motivated. The 31-year-old Saudi activist criticized the kingdom's guardship system, which bars women from traveling without a male relative and her outspokenness on human rights issues. She was first detained in 2014 for 70 days, when in an act of defiance, she posted a video online of herself attempting to drive from United Arab Emirates into the into the kingdom. Let's go. Just drive it, girl. Oh my gosh. Wow. But while she was in prison, several sources reported that Lou Jean had been forced to kiss and perform other sexual acts on interrogators. Helen Kennedy, a British lawyer and human rights advocate, wrote in a report that last year as a Saudi Arabia was holding their virtual G20 summit and stated that like from behind bars, Lou Jean had launched hunger strikes. She was protesting. She was experiencing all of these severe random torture and sexual exploitation from her torture, so to speak. The guards, but Saudi Arabian officials deny that this ever happened. My goodness. Eugene's family said that an appeals court on uh, this last Tuesday rejected her claims of torture, citing a lack of evidence. While some activists and their families have been pressured into silence, her siblings, who reside in the United States and Europe, had launched a high profile campaign calling for her release when she was in jail. In a press conference, another one of Lujin's sister had said that when Lujin would talk to her parents, she would always tell her parents that she was fine. But she was only saying that because while she was on the phone, 
she had an electrocution device attached to her ear. Wow. And so although she's been released and remains free, she's under strict conditions. And her family is said to be uh, trying to pursue so pursue justice for their daughter. Lou Jean has a five-year travel ban and three years of probation now that she's free. For driving. Yes. For driving, for inciting change. I also, one of the things you mentioned is that, like, she was persecuted under counterterrorism law. And I know that this is a very serious issue. I just am very entertained by the thought of people thinking that like a caravan of girls on a road trip is terrorism. I'm so sorry. That's not funny. But I literally I all I can picture is me and my friends just driving and having that be considered ter- terrorism. Like what? I think Americans, especially American women, that we can take for granted all the rights that we have and everything that we've accomplished in the United States, whether it's voting or just trying to get equal pay. Cause there are a lot of countries that if you travel to, you can be in severe trouble for just for like Saudi Arabia driving. If you're not wearing the hijab, you know, you, you know what you're wearing, your clothes and stuff. Like women are in some countries thought of literally as dirt. And I think as Americans, we can take for granted how well we're treated compared to other countries. I hear what you're saying. can't drive on their own they can't have a credit card like to me this is just in to inhumane practices that make women seem as if like dogs and so in some countries women are below dogs which is even crazier i don't know where or the ideology in some of these countries on how women got to that point because we're women as women we're human we can do things just as much as men can do, if not better, I would say better, but, and, but yet we're suppressed all the time. Yeah. I also think it's everywhere. Like, I think we talked about this when we talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but like some of the privileges you just mentioned, like having a credit card, like that was instituted after my grandma was born in what, 1929. Grandma couldn't have a credit card when she first got married. Yeah. Oh, that my grandpa she couldn't have a driver's license like so those things I feel like I put a lot in perspective of her because one she's my last living grandparent and also to me she like isn't that old so like a lot of the stuff that she was not able to do when she was younger I think sometimes she might project onto my sister and my cousin and I because she's like oh you can't do that and we're just like no like we we definitely can (laughs) like there are things that we can so it's there's still I guess remnants of that of the persecution that women faced in America in some people's minds even though the the laws say differently and so this is like with all of the change that um Lujin is inciting in Saudi Arabia like if they were to change it there would still be, I guess, how do I say it? I don't want to say trauma. Yeah, I guess, like, remnants of trauma associated with, like, generations after. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think, too, like, the example of your grandma and even my grandma, Mm -hmm. there's just that for so long they were told, no, you can't do this. Mm -hmm. And so it's just pretty much been ingrained in them that they can't do this. And Mm -hmm. so that's why, like, for our grandparents' generation – they're a lot more conservative or they still think that you can't do certain things or, you know, they, they're the ones who kind of like, they were the the housewives or they didn't really work or whatever. And so they, they're more of thinking of, Oh, you should be doing 
women should be in these roles or this role or whatever. They have like a, an ideology or a specific idea because that's what was indoctrinated throughout their whole life. Their parents mm-hmm. taught them that this is what you do. The women, women do this, they cook and they clean and they obey and they don't talk back, you know, and all, all this frivolous nonsense stuff that we don't obviously do now necessarily. So it's sad, but I'm also glad that as we move forward, mm-hmm. it will get better throughout the years, but it's still something that is just reminiscent and yeah, I can definitely see with Saudi Arabia, if it does change, or just any other country, if this does change, there will be remnants of that. You yeah. will still have a lot of people, whether it's older people like our grandparents who are saying, no, no, you can't do that, but you can, or you have people who are really against it and are just going to, like, drag you down. Yeah, yeah, you're going to have the people who, like, were indifferent about the change still kind of being like well this is like rocking the boat too much and then the people who were outright opposed to the change in the first place trying to to stop it in whatever way they see fit i'm glad that she's out and i hate that she is on probation i don't know i'm gonna keep her name on my radar to see what she does next because i feel like i'm invested now (laughs) yeah i definitely will say that if we go to saudi Arabia, we should not be driving a car no, we're getting a driver, and we're getting burkas. Yes. We're conforming as much as possible. I would not want to go to jail in a foreign country. Nope. I wouldn't want to go to jail anywhere, but definitely not in a foreign country. Because I feel like if I go to jail out life. here, my mom would at least pay my bail. Yeah. I and feel I like don't if you know get jailed in another country, like that's like the worst nightmare for me of like, Going to a foreign hospital or a foreign, like, jail. I know you are not saying going to a foreign hospital when you definitely were in a foreign hospital. Yeah, that gave me nightmares. So, obviously, like, going to any other foreign hospitals are going to be the worst for me. St. Vincent was horrible. I'm sorry, St. Vincent, if you're listening. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. I just remember, like, them calling, and they're like, Brie asked if you could pack her a bag. And I was like, I don't know what she needs to pack. And I was just like... And then I go, and you were just so excited to see me, but they weren't letting you go, and I felt bad, but I was also like, sorry, girl, I can't stay. But yes, anyways, but that was a a, a better circumstance, I guess, to have been in a hospital in a foreign country, but if I wasn't in a foreign country, like, in a school setting, I can yeah. see how it could be much worse. I- well, I also feel like any time that you go somewhere for like business or pleasure and you're there for a short time and it's interrupted by an illness, like that's going to suck. Mm-hmm. Like even if I went to, I don't know, where's the Mayo Clinic? Is that in Ohio? I feel like they're known for like their, that hospital. But if I went to Ohio, I don't know why I would go there on purpose. But if I, I went there and I ended up at the Mayo Clinic, I would still not be happy even though it's, like, rated one of the top hospitals in the country. Well, I think it, it also just goes to being comfortable. But so being being in a foreign hospital, there's just, you know, some a lot of the hospital systems, system, depending on where you're at, are inadequate. Some are very adequate. If I was in an adequate hospital, I, I don't think I'd have a problem. But I've never obviously been in prison, especially in a foreign country, whether I've not experienced that before. And I don't think I ever want to because a thousand days in prison or even 70 sound really horrible. And I really do not want to be sexually exploited either. Um, and no, it's I would just not last three days. I would just cry myself to sleep every day. I'm not made for that. I know that I'm not. It's just sad, but like even because although like we're talking, we're talking about Saudi Arabia specifically and Lujin's experience with sexual exploitation. There still is, even in the United States, women who are sexually exploited. Mm-hmm. Like currently, there are over like two two hundred thousand women in prison in the United States, and about fifteen percent of those incarcerated females are victims of prison sexual assaults at the hands of staff or other inmates. Oh. And so although, you know, I say I don't want to be in a foreign prison, I also don't want to be even in a local prison because it's just it's just as bad. Maybe not as bad, but it's just as bad. It's a mess. 
I, I, I mean, like I said before, I'm just going to keep an eye out for her because I'm excited to see what happens next. Because she definitely seems like the kind of person who is not going to let that setback of being jailed mm-hmm. change her trajectory in terms of advocating for change. Next in Hot Topics, Indigenous people fight to preserve land at Cal State Long Beach. So, about a year ago, dirt and debris from a construction site at Cal State Long Beach were dumped on a 22-acre plot of land known to several Native American tribes in Southern California as Pavonga. In 1974, Pavonga was placed on the National Register of Historic Sites. It's considered to be sacred to local tribes, including Okjokamin Nation and Gabrielino Tongva San Gabriel Band of Mission Indians. Gabrielino Tongva Tribal Secretary Kimberly Morales Johnson acknowledges the land to be the birthplace of her people. In the fall of 2019, the sacred site that is commonly used for ceremonies and gatherings became a dumping ground. Cal State Long Beach used the Longda to get rid of dirt, trash, and debris from a nearby construction site on campus, and they have not made any plans to remove it despite countless requests from the tribes. Like, what? Why is this going on? Like, this is just so disrespectful. I, I'm i sure someone was just like, oh, that plot of land, no one's doing anything over there. And they were just like, let's just dump it. But no, even if it wasn't just a plot of, like, that is... They should have known. They should have. I'm sure someone knew. Yeah. But it's, it's sure. I to me, it feels like more a matter of caring. It seems like mm-hmm. whether it's Cal State Long Beach itself or whatever um, contracting company is or shark, uh, responsible for the construction going on, um, pe- they just didn't care. And they were just like, this, we need to get this out of here. And this is a close place. And we don't have time to be driving back and forth up and down the 710 to dump this this waste that we're developing while we dig um, to put in new buildings. Yeah. This also first like came on my radar when I saw like indigenous people. There was a video, I think it was on Twitter, I'm sure it was on Twitter, of some indigenous people doing a ritual dance. And, you know, at first I was just watching and I had no idea what it was about. But people in the comments were just like, if they don't, if Cal State Long Beach doesn't do something about this soon, then they're going to have a problem. I was like, oh, <laughs> what did they do? And apparently they've just been dumping trash. That's horrible. Yeah. And I'm really kind of, su- I'm surprised and really disappointed because at this day and age, I feel like most states and universities and even the United States in general has really mm. been trying to preserve and give back land to indigenous people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like apologize for what had happened in past, like in the past years. Mm-hmm. Like even like for um, one of my classes at UC Davis, they went over, like we literally took a class period to go over and acknowledge the land. The land that you were on? The land that we were on, which was for UC Davis is the Patwin people. Mm-hmm. And that they're still, that tribe is still around today. Mm-hmm. And so they just go over how they're honored and grateful to be here today on their traditional lands and have given various acknowledgements around UC Davis for this tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Morrill Act of 1862 and the formation of land grant institution included the University of California. California, but was an act that gave tons and tons of acres of land to universities to build and start growing their institutions. Mm-hmm. But they stole all this land from yeah. indigenous populations during this. Yeah, and so it, this involves Cornell, like University of Nebraska, Nevada. Like, there's various different states across all states pretty much across the United States where this act encompass, you know, starting institution that stole land. Yeah. And so I feel like going over this and just acknowledging it is something that should be done mm-hmm. because like for specifically for like Cornell U- university, like they were given almost like a million acres while the, like the university of California 
which encompasses pretty much all UCs, would -hmm. give in like 150,000 acres. So I feel like as we proceed, you know, these institutions are already established and you can't really undo what has been done with all the building and the institutions in place, but we should at least acknowledge. Yeah, that's the bare minimum is the acknowledgement and then making space for members of that of those native tribes to if they want to pursue education at that institution with little or no tuition i think would be a form of reparations for all of the damage that has been done i feel like that would be the least they they could do those institutions could do in terms of reparations for the damage that has been done it's also interesting um, another part of this article went on to say that in October of 2020 that Mm -hmm. Cal State Long Beach reached a settlement with the Tonga people and the settlement was supposed to the settlement agreement that they came to was that they would stop dumping debris and that they would remove it Mm mm-hmm They have stopped dumping, but they have not removed anything. (sighs) But the author of that article also acknowledged that construction has halted. So they don't they're not even sure if they really have stopped dumping or just because there's no construction going on. But they haven't had anything to dump. And that's why the dumping hasn't continued. Oh, it's it's a mess. There's also you said it was Potawan land. Potwin. Potwin land. So. There's this phone number you can text if you send, like, the city and state that you're in mm-hmm. to this number. It'll tell you what indigenous land you're on. And so when I was in Towson, I was on Piscataway land. And now that I'm back home in Altadena, I'm on the same land that the Puvangua land is from. So the Tongva people. That's a long stretch from yeah, Long Beach, which is, like, that little harbor all the way up to the, the base of the mountains in Altadena. Yeah. Our next hot topic is about women in blue. Long before George Floyd was killed during an encounter with Minneapolis police officers last May, the department was struggling with a history of police misconduct and allegations of racism and sexism within its ranks. A documentary that was recently released on PBS takes viewers inside the police force, offering insight into the inner workings of the department and its efforts to connect with residents. Filmed between 2017 of last year, the documentary Women in Blue follows the first woman to serve as chief, Janie Hartu, and focuses on four female officers, each trying to redefine what it means to protect and serve. After a high-profile Officer involved shooting forces Chief Hartu to resign. The new male chief selects only men as his top brass. The film reveals the limitations of police reform through incremental changes and asks and tries to answer the question that applies well beyond the city of Minneapolis, including whether increased gender equity and more women, particularly black women, contribute to better public safety. Official, the film's director, found statistics going back 30 years that women rely less on physical force because they communicate better, and they're better at defusing potentially violent confrontations before they turn deadly. And I just thought, given the prevalence of police violence in this country, why is the issue of gender kind of nowhere to be seen? Mm. The director hopes the film reaches decision makers and reaches people who are engaged in police reform. He loved for Americans to be engaged in some of the more difficult conversations about what women could potentially bring and and what that could look like. So that when people are thinking about reimagining public safety, they're thinking about gender as part of that conversation. This is really interesting to me because... I feel like recently I've been thinking about like the cliche, like, oh, like humans were just violent by nature, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking about some of the most prominent examples of that are all 
white men, Lord of the Flies, the Stanford Prison Experiment. And so it's like when you when you throw race into the mix, when you throw gender especially into the mix, I feel like people being inherently violent is not human nature. So I'd be interested to watch this. Maybe I'll watch it before we record next time and then I'll give you my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very interesting documentary and it is it really just portrays as a society that we really just need to roll up our sleeves. The film really shows the incremental reform doesn't really work. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. however like you want to parse that, um you just can't, you know, put in a new training or hire a few new people and think it's gonna make a difference. Mm-hmm. There needs to be like an overhaul of the system mm-hmm. about the ex about what the expectations are and what the requirements are and who do we want to get stuff done. You know, re a total reimagination of this department involving women and trans. It's not just only having men do it because. Mm-hmm. I feel like it just kind of goes back to that train of thought that people of all different races and beliefs and genders, if you can get them to come together in like a police force or a department or any kind of job, you're going to have all these different opinions, perspectives to come in in order to recreate something for that could be really amazing rather than having white men who are probably going to come from similar backgrounds, similar religions, same area, and do the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Same shit, different day kind of thing. When we need to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Yeah, and I also think, in addition, like, what you said is spot on. And with all of the differences in diversity of gender, of race, of sexual orientation, of just you know, the whole spectrum of lived experiences, we need to make sure everybody who's involved in the conversation and the development of like whatever overhaul needs to take place just has an equitable voice in the conversation. Because Mm -hmm. if you have someone like, you know, a representative of each kind of different group, but then people still kind of default to a particular group for leadership or like as them being the norm, then that's, Mm -hmm. you're going to, even if you try to reinvent the wheel, you're going to get the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm kind of hoping that like Kamala Harris, like watches this or something and then we can like get. (laughs) Oh, watches the documentary. I thought you meant to our podcast. That's why I was laughing. I was like, Oh, I, no, at that point, you probably have someone listening for her to like oh give her the, the rundown of it. <laughs> no, but I was meaning more like I'm hoping she's Kamala Harris. Okay, sorry. Yes, yeah, the documentary. <laughs> so sorry. And like you know, pushes for more reformers. <laughs> I was like, girl, you got big dreams for this. Give us, a, give us a few more months. You know, let me just fly back to Maryland. I'm close to Washington, right? Yep. Just email it to her. I'm sure her email is like publicly Kamala available. Harris. Yep. <laughs> Kamala Harris, VP, Kamala Harris, There you go. That's right. Our woman of the week is Marie Maynard Daly. Marie was an influential biochemist and the first black woman to earn a PhD in chemistry in the U.S. She was born in 1921, and she completed her first undergrad degree at Queens College, her master's at New York University and her PhD at Columbia University. She then worked with Quentin Deming on arterial metabolism, exploring the links between high cholesterol, clogged arteries, and increased risk of heart attacks. She also worked on protein synthesis and the chemistry of histones. I love when people are the first of something to do something. I think that now in 2021, it's like annoying to hear that because it's just like, come on now. We should have had somebody do everything by now, but especially to be born in 1921. So she would be, I mean, I just mentioned my grandma's age. She would be my grandma's contemporary and to get her PhD at a time when not just black people and not just women, but definitely black women were not being selected for or being accepted into programs of higher education. Yeah. She overcame dual hurdles, uh, not just racial 
but gender bias. You know, back, mm-hmm. you know, she grew up in a really biased, not just racial, but also gender era. Mm-hmm. And to achieve the education that she did. If you take either biochem or like a higher level chemistry class, then you get more into the histones in DNA synthesis. But it's just remarkable that not only did she do this as a black woman, but all of this was done in what, the 40s? Mm-hmm. She had to be. Oh my goodness! I cannot yeah. imagine. Like I, I can't imagine doing that without a computer. Seven. Yeah, exactly. Like imagine all of the calculations that she had to do by hand. I know this lady was beyond, beyond genius. She definitely was smart. And yeah, I agree with you. Doing it hands-on calculations and it's hard. I can't imagine having to do that now, just because we're so like we're so reliant on technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'll pull out my calculator quickly. Uh, <laughs> double digit multiplication. I think it is also really amazing too that she was awarded a fellowship to pursue graduate studies in chemistry at New York University while working part time as a laboratory assistant at Queens College. So uh-huh. she she didn't just you know achieve this higher education by like applying like everyone else. She also achieved scholarships, and that too still amazes me that that she just was this amazingly smart woman. Especially now that I'm like in the process of waiting for match day, I am definitely an advocate of not only going where you're valued, but like going where you're celebrated. And it seems like not only was she valued for her intellect and her contributions to chemistry, but she was celebrated while she was alive as well, which is something that not every, not, we can't say about everyone. Sometimes people get their flowers after they're dead. And for our Today in History, I feel like I usually try to go more uplifting with Today in History, but I felt like this was really relevant and significant, so I decided to go with this. Today in 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed an executive order to detain all Japanese Americans in internment camps. This order kept Japanese Americans in internment camps primarily located along the West Coast from 1942 to 1945 and was FDR's policy response to the bombings at Pearl Harbor. His decision was influenced by a report from Lieutenant General John DeWitt, who knowingly included fraudulent accounts of sabotage from American citizens of Japanese descent. DeWitt's original plan also called to intern citizens of German and Italian descent, but that aspect was voted down by Congress. I don't remember when I first learned about Japanese internment during World War II, but I remember learning the most about it in high school when we watched a documentary about the Japanese basketball leagues. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's a lot of Japanese basketball leagues, and they take place primarily on the weekends, and it's like Saturday is a practice day, you practice with your team, Sunday you compete, you live your life Monday through Friday, and then you do it all over again the next weekend. And so I was really, you know, kind of jealous that I couldn't join when I, at first when I was playing basketball, and then we saw this documentary, and they became so prominent because on the internment camps, they were put to work, and the only recreational activity that they had access to They were given basketball courts and basketballs. Mm -hmm. Um, I always knew that the internment camps were primarily on the West Coast. And like there is like 20 minutes from us, there's the San Anita Mall, which is in Arcadia. And Arcadia has a very, very dense population of American citizens who are of Asian descent, like Mm -hmm. throughout you know, the whole Asian continent. And I learned in researching this that it was primarily because there was an internment camp at the San Anita horse racetrack that is just north of the San Anita Mall. And I never knew that before. And I like ran to ask my sister if she knew that. She was like, yeah. And I was like, I didn't know that it was at the racetrack. Like I I knew that it was in that area. Yeah, they didn't know that they were just housing people in stables like horses, which is so tragic. It's really sad. And I think this is something, too, that I remember learning about in high school 
Mm-hmm. I don't really remember it being as emphasized as like when you learn about like the Holocaust and stuff. I remember learning it that wasn't. in middle school and high school. I learned about it in college and yeah. And with the Holocaust and stuff, like the question is, like how did that happen or why would it happen? And um, like you don't want to repeat that or you know mm-hmm. we even as Americans we shame and we look down and we're like wow and we're shocked by it. But then we pretty much did the same thing literally and we don't really it's kind of like hush hush and we talk about it we learn about it in school but it's not really emphasized when we literally did something very similar i also learned about an internment camp where they put freed black people right after the civil war in georgia and i was like i don't have the mental capacity to read any more on this right now so maybe i'll revisit this later but it's yeah it's one of those things you learn about the holocaust and i think maybe you we learn about it so frequently because of the numbers it was over a million jewish people and and russian people and black people and gay people who were persecuted and disabled people yeah who were persecuted in the concentration camps but like the atrocities existed elsewhere just because they weren't on the same scale doesn't mean they're any better exactly we want to thank you for listening to act up podcast if you like what you're hearing please review us on whatever platform you listen to if you have any recommendations or specific women that you would like to hear about please email us at actuppodcast1 at gmail.com and please follow us on instagram facebook and twitter at actuppodcast The reputable sources that we acquired this week's information from are Fox 8, Jurist.org, Fox, The New York Times, Varsity Co. UK, ScienceHistory.org, and KCAL 9. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye.